Chapter 4, Gatherlin. After the people of Winter completed their flower-covered monuments in Tittle Field, they made their way over to town for Gatherlin, the festive conclusion to every moon's day, a celebration of the lives lived by those past and a celebration of those still living. Beyond the pile of baskets and clippers deserted at the entrance of the main street could be found the best ales and lagers drawn from barrels imported from the Isle of Hin, the ripest fruit from the farms freshly picked and cooked, joyous music emanating from maldrut violas, bone cellos and ragwire flutes, jubilant, contagious dancing demanding feet to prance rather than step, and gripping storytelling holding in thrall the gathered listeners. Upon arriving at the celebration, Amory left Lunel beneath the rejoicing of music to join some friends who were playing under the four moons' luminous light at the foot of the docks, skipping stones across the surface of the black waters. Twelve skips! Turber Pensley shouted, pumping his fist. Beat that! challenged the lean and sturdy boy, the tallest of the group of friends. His curly black hair layered the top of his head like ivy, and brown freckles surrounded his deep blue eyes. I will, said Amory, approaching from behind Turber and the others. They all spun around. Then we need to see it, Turber's tone contained a hint of amusement. With the tall boy were Gride, Birkeland Still, and Desdale Declan. Gride was dark and chubby with brown hair nearly cut to his scalp. A large oval birthmark marred the top of his right cheek. Desdale was a short, blonde boy with wild, wavy hair who was Amory's closest friend. He was honest, humble, and a good companion to have when feeling glum. Everyone's eyes went to Amory as he selected his rock, wound up his arm, and launched the rock upon the dull surface of the waters. It skipped eleven times. Amory let out a sigh of disappointment. Eleven, Desdale said. Good try. That's what you call black luck said Gride, pushing his mole up and around with the index finger of his left hand. Turber wanted to further the spirit of the competition. We're doing it again, but this time it'll be a gab pill game, he said. He pursed his lips. Taken from the Isle of Gab Pill, a Gab Pill game was a game where the loser was forced to complete a specific task. We'll each throw five tosses, and each toss will be a round. The first to win three rounds wins, and the loser has to... He thought hard for a moment, looking around. Has to go into the cabin of the Aeol. The Aeol was the ancient ship tethered to the docks, accumulating mold and dust. No one is supposed to touch that ship, Desdell warned, shaking his head. It could be dangerous, and who knows what the elders would do if we got caught. Exactly, it's perfect, and the elders aren't around to catch us, Turber turned to Amory. Are you in or not? He asked with a conniving gleam in his eyes and a smirk that lengthened with the gestation of his presented challenge. Amory knew he was up to the challenge. Challenging each other to one competition or another was what Turber and Amory did. All right, I'm in. But don't blame me if it is you who comes out of this a frightened and crumpled flower bud. It will not be me that's crying at the end of this, Turber rebutted, inspecting with narrowed eyes the rocks he would use for the challenge. I'll go first. Turber selected the proper rock for his first toss. Silently, the other three boys anxiously awaited the beginning of the game. Turber's eyes narrowed and his grip on the rock tightened. Veins in his forearms flexed. He set the stone in flight. 
It soared from skip to skip until it hit the end of its course, when the skips were almost instantaneous and then ceased. Twelve again, Gride stated. That's what I counted too, Desdell said. A sharp eye was required for the counting of stone skips. It was not the actual skips of the rock that were counted, but the circles of ripples that followed behind them. However, the circles were only counted up until the point that they became indistinguishable, the point at which the rock skipped so many times that the skips could not be accounted for. Turber turned to Amory as he brought up, chest high, his tossing hand in a fist, alternating pressure in his palm by clenching one finger at a time. Pride was written on his face. Your turn. Tucking in his bottom lip while visualizing his goal, Amory loosed his first toss. Eleven. Twelve. Thirteen skips. Wow, thirteen, Desdell said. My win, Amory grinned widely. You just got lucky, Turber insisted with a glare, but don't celebrate yet. I'm saving my best throws for last. What Turber said must have been true, because Amory lost all three of the next tosses. He did not even come close to winning again. The worst part was not even having to face entering the ship. It was Turber's gloating. Okay, Amory, it's time for you to meet the Aeol. Turber said triumphantly, silently clapping three times before bringing one hand again into a fist and alternating his clenching fingers. I really don't know if this is a good idea, Desdell said, his eyebrows lifting with worry. He always acted as the voice of reason. He had a hard time coping with daring exploits and the consequences that could result from them. He has to, Gride said, still fiddling with his mole. More often than not, Gride sided with Turber on differences of opinion between the friends, a subordinate of the tall boy's subtle bullying. Yup, Turber grinned. We'll wait right here. And just so we know you really did it, you have to take something from inside, something that would only be in the cabin of the ship, like a map or spyglass or something. What if I can't find anything? You have to, or there isn't any way to know you really went inside. Before he knew it, Amory was cautiously taking the dreadful steps towards the old ship. His bottom lip again was tucked in as acute concentration took hold. The sounds of the black waters penetrated his ears as he got nearer to the vessel that slowly bobbed, the water lapping sluggishly against its sides with a thick and low-pitched slosh. Suddenly Amory's heavy steps turned into a run as he propelled towards the Aeol by a voracious vision that motivated his adventurous spirit. Fear and excitement surged through his body and clouded his mind as he ran up the platform that bridged dock to ship, so much so that he could not even remember boarding and entering the ancient vessel. Over the main deck, down the steps to the hold, and into the cabin he went. The boy frantically searched here and there, in drawers and cupboards, and on all the surfaces at the peak of an overwhelming fear. Finally, he found a small brass compass. He sped out of the Aeol as if a Hyneta crag jumper from the Isle of Dake were chasing at his heels. As he raced back towards land, where Turber, Gride, and Desdale should have been, he saw that his friends were gone. His heart was beating insatiably from his success, but there was no one to share it with. Amory noticed then that the music and shouting of the evening celebration had ceased. He hurried into town and found everyone huddled tightly in a large circle around a bonfire and an Endil merchant who, coming to join in the gathering festivities, had begun to tell a story. 
Follow the reaper, the creeper of the hidden. Follow the jester that bid you to dance. Listen to leaves as they fall into water. Take up the widow's old failing romance. That be what the Snokin sang in the most twisted of voices the hunter had ever heard with his own ears of flesh. But it was even more horrid as the hunter peered at the thing frolicking bout a horrible heap of twigs and furs made by its own hands, flying here and there with flimsy, wiry wings of wick. He himself, the hunter, meant no harm in following the normal path back home from the woods, but he snuck close to the odd creature to better listen when he first heard its notes. And when the snilkin went and eyed the hunter's presence neath the bushes due to his gasping, it beckoned him to it with the most crooked of arms and spoke over his presence with his raspy old voice. Join me not in this sapphire sky Under these blood-red clouds On the eve that I die Follow me too, if you ever so like Into the bowels of death Upon the morning light Only but a mumble was what came From those lips of the hunter in return And he sat still too He couldn't move one muscle If even his death were coming at him With his line to cut I think then the Snilkin became angered by the hunter's fear of resoluteness, for it swooped down by his face, the Snilkin being no larger than your neck be wide, and hissed a wretched spell of misery. The next thing the hunter be known is that he's atop the cursed pile of the creature's devotement, shrunk to the size of a large insect, with the Snilkin nowhere to be seen. Now whether this hunter was smart or not, I'll never know, but he lay with his eyes closed in his spot, as quiet as the night that arrived, with his hand behind his back holding his knife. When the Snilkin came back it saw nothing as being awry, and continued its bitter chant. In its hand it held a newly collected pike for its plotting, the thing it was going to use to sacrifice the hunter. As it flew close to its victim, the hunter struck, leaping from his act of sleep, latching himself to the wicked fairy's wrinkled body with his knife deep in its neck. The Snilkin gawked and gurgled and made its last gruesome noise before it fell all a limp to the ground below, with the hunter still hanging on dearly. Now this be where I have doubts about the wisdom of this fabled hunter. For once the Snilkin was dead, he had no way to return to his former size. He walked home, and, as it turned out, it was the hunter's own wife that squished him as he tried to get through the cracks in his front door the morning after. Tis not the malady, but the words which foretold it, that strikes the greatest fear from this tale. For the power of a snilk can still be not known. They're scarce to the ear, and even rarer to the eye. Not more than two occasions such as this have ever been recorded. So I ask you now to not forget, no matter how wretched it be to remember, those words that the snilkin spoke. Join me not in this sapphire sky, under these blood-red clouds, on the eve that I die. Follow me too, if you ever so like, into the bowels of death upon the morning light. 
At the finish of the story, everyone stared at the Endel as if enchanted by a spell of his own. Eyes were wide in thought. Some were shaken and some were puzzled. Amory was in his own stupor of delight, captivated by the images projected by his hungry imagination. This Endel's name was Bainan's, but he went simply by Bay and was a regular to Winder. He normally came twice a month and never missed Moon's days. He always wore the same black, wide-rimmed hat, with his black beard grown down to his chest. His skin alone made him foreign to Winder, for it was a dark, vivid red. His garments were nothing more than weather-beaten trousers and a long-sleeved shirt. Are the Snilkins real? Someone called out from the crowd. Bay turned his head in the direction of the voice and squinted as if to find the hidden owner. Well, I don't suppose it be made up if I be telling about it, he responded. But that's all supposing that you don't need your eyes to be believing in something. No one asked any more questions after that. The music quickly started up again and people went back to their eating, drinking, and dancing. A few people returned to Bay with things to barter. Wherever Bay was, there was a huge pack of goods collected from the aisles with him. Under the return of the jubilant mood and sounds of Gatherland, Amory revealed the captured compass to his friends. You found something! Turber's eyes popped with excitement and a hint of jealousy. A compass! Desdell cried. Compasses were rarely used on the Isle of Winder. The moons and the sun were easy enough to orient oneself and navigate by on the consistently flat and small overall area of the Isle. Only in the fogs and weathers of the black waters were such devices a necessity. Yeah, Amory said, rotating the tool in a circle. And the needle moves just as it's supposed to, always pointing north. I can't believe you actually found something, Turber said. I mean, I said you would, but, well, I just thought it would be harder. What was it like in the ship? Dusty and dirty. Other than that, there was not much to see. I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. It smelled really bad, too. Turber took the compass from Amory and began inspecting it, holding it up to his eye and twisting it around, watching the needle hold its position. So I guess, Turber began, I guess I get the compass, right? Since you lost the game and had to bring it to me. No, I get it, Amory responded harshly. I was the one who found it, so I get to keep it. It was a gab pill game, not a debt to repay. But Turber already had the compass in his hand and was backing away from him. You don't get it, Amory, Gride said, teaming up with Turber as usual. He was fiddling again with his mole. You'll have to go and find your own compass, Turber said, delight written on his face. But I found that one, Amory pointed at the compass in the taller boy's hand. Turber quickly turned to run away from Amory, but was halted before he could take a step. Bay was blocking his path. Only shivers disturbed the frozen tension of Turber's body. Bay reached down and pulled Turber's arm up, then took the compass from his clutch. I think there's been a misconception about the rules of property, Bay stated. Only a thief plunders things from the living without deed or contract, and I see no contract binding you to this here property, young lad. Your friend there found this, and so it be his, unless I be wrong about you being a thief. Turber immediately shook his head right and left repeatedly. Good, cause if you were, I'd have had to cut off your hands. 
Turber stumbled off, his nerves distressing the trueness of his steps. Gride followed him. Thank you, Emery half-whispered as Bay handed him the compass. Ah, don't mention it, young sir. You've got to be careful who you let take a look at your things. I know all too well. Bay adjusted the pack on his back. Well, it's best I be on my way. Take care of that there compass, I. All right, Amory barely managed to speak. In time, Bay said with a nod to Amory and Desdale. He then trotted off towards Temper Time Cemetery. <laughs>